Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Naked Security Podcast. As you can hear, I am not Doug. I'm the other one, Duck. Doug is away this week, so I am joined by my trusty friend and colleague from Vancouver, Chester Wisniewski. Hello, Chet. Hey, Doc. It's good to be back on the podcast, uh, ringing in the summer on the Naked Security Podcast. Yes, happy solstice. You've been on the road, haven't you, lately, for the first time in quite a while? I did full RSA a, a couple of weeks back in San Francisco, where you go to San Francisco and you meet with people at RSA, but you don't actually go into the room where the RSA is because people don't know how to wear masks, which turned out good for me because uh, uh, RSA was a bit of a super spreader event. And, but I didn't have the good enough sense to stay home. So uh, I'm, I'm podcasting this week with you from lovely Anaheim, California, very near the uh, the, the D in the DMCA, the Disney Millennium Copyright Act, uh, across the street from Disneyland. And home, I'm delighted to say, to the Anaheim Ducks, no less. Yes, they are less mighty than they once were. Oh, I was going to say, I think I could get behind a team with a name like that, Chester. So let's jump into this week's cybersecurity stories, Chester. Uh, the first one, Love to hear your take on this. We wrote it up uh, this week on Naked Security. It's all about phone scammers and the fact that they're quite hard to deal with because there are fake call centers all over the world. Uh, but Interpol every year have a kind of a multi country phone scammer takedown fest uh, that they call First Light. This year's ran for two months and involved more than 70 countries. And Although that sounds like a lot of work, and it really was, nevertheless, they were able to make something of a dent, busting 2,000 suspects, confiscating 50 million US dollars, if you don't mind, uh, at 1,700 locations around the world. So uh, it seems there's no shortage of money, sadly, for phone scammers. It still pays the bills for them, sadly. Well, that explains why we probably get so many of those phone calls, especially those of us that are silly enough to still have non-mobile telephones, which for some reason my voice over IP number that at one past time was a landline, I think it's probably four or five times as many of these calls coming in as I do on my mobile number. But it is impressive. I think it's important to remind uh, people that this isn't one giant cybercrime group that operates in 70 countries. It's more of a coordinated effort directed toward this problem in general. And so this is probably hundreds of individual groups making up the 2,000 plus arrests, right? But it does show what a global problem it is. Presumably, of 70 countries, they're not all English speaking. There's going to be people scamming in many different languages with many different sets of victims, uh, not just English speaking countries. Indeed. And along with those 2,000 arrests and the $50 million, apparently that involved the freezing of 4,000 different bank accounts. So as you say, it's not just one giant group with a few subsidiaries. It's, it's sort of a giant group of giant groups. And from some of the videos I've seen online where people have, rightly or wrongly, managed to, when, when they've had a call they've, and gone online with the scammers, they've been able to go in backwards, like a sort of a reverse shell, but for the CCTV, so they can 
see what's going on in the call centre while they're being scammed. Some of these are not tiny operations. They are hundreds of people in what is effectively a call centre, set up professionally like a call centre. It just they're not making professional calls, they're making crooked calls. Yeah, and I mean, this is a without going down the cryptocurrency rabbit hole, but uh, those 4,000 bank accounts, uh, good luck if those were Bitcoin wallets or uh, Monero or something, right? I mean, the traditional financial system at least gives us an opportunity to seize those funds and hopefully maybe even redirect that money back toward the victims that were scammed in the first place, where when we look at so many of these rug pulls and crypto scams that are going on, generally the money is never recovered. Because $50 million has been frozen just of what hadn't been moved out of the accounts yet in this operation, that suggests that there are a lot of friends and family that we could be reaching out to who are still in desperate need of being told what to listen out for. Because these guys are very, very persuasive, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the polish on their scripts and the amount of people they've probably previously victimized uh, unfortunately seems to have given them you know professional experience at being a con artist right and i imagine that's true of many con artists in, in any traditional uh, scam out there but the fact that there's humans involved makes the victims less on their guard i think we, we've gotten so used to scammy things in our email that once we get on the telephone and the, it, there's a, a, a an empathetic person on the other end of the line that seems to be trying to help us that it makes us extra susceptible to going along with the scam, even though there may be sort of red flags or at least amber-colored ones all along the path. So what's your advice for people to advise their favorite auntie, their mum, their cousin, their friends who aren't as tech-savvy? It's tough giving people advice. I mean, there's 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 sort of two groups out there, right? You're you're asking what do you tell the vulnerable group? There's also, of course, a lot of the people like the folks that listen to this podcast, which I often interact with, where they will say, "Oh, you know, I spent an hour on the phone with them, and I guess that's okay if you've got an hour to waste, but you're probably not actually accomplishing much by tying them up on the telephone for too long." And 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 it seems to be that the savviness of the criminals these days, uh, they have very little tolerance for being uh, played with like a cat and mouse kind of game. They'll just hang up on you and get angry uh, and move on to the next victim. So I'm not sure that's terribly useful. As far as the the family members. Um, I, I mean, I think we have to go back to the same type of advice uh, we've been trying to give people for years about the incoming call that pretends to be from the tax authority in your country or pretends to be from the police. In this case, of course, it's outgoing calls. Uh, you're being tricked into calling them in many cases, which uh, I guess lends more credibility to this. But the reminder to family and friends is in both directions, you should be suspicious of these things that you're not expecting to occur. Most of us have tried to call and get customer support from many large companies or, for that matter, our local government or police or different things. And it's usually a lot more difficult than you'd think. And so if you call a number and people instantly answer and want to help you, sadly, that kind of is an indicator something might be wrong. Um, you should always be verifying that phone number you're calling. Uh, you know, if it says it's from your bank, then, you know, you get the number off the back of your bank card is what the advice we always gave was. Exactly. And so it's that same type of thing, right? If it's coming in, then you hang up and call back. And if, and if you're calling out, you don't just trust a phone number because it shows up in an email or a fax or anything else for that matter. 
Um, you should always verify using some legitimate method, uh, previous correspondence, uh, a card you carry in your wallet, or perhaps the website that you regularly visit that's bookmarked in your browser to be sure you're using the correct contact information. And absolutely don't trust the number that shows up when they call you just because you think it looks legit. Because as you've said before, when you were last on the podcast, you'd received a, a phone call and they were obviously trying to pretend to be Amazon and they'd gone out of their way to get a Seattle, Washington number so that you think, oh, well, Amazon's in Seattle. Look, they've got the right dialing code. That will always show up correctly if the crooks want it to because they can pretty much come up with toll-free numbers for you to call at almost no cost to themselves and they can make their outbound numbers look pretty much like what they want, can't they? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, a lot of the scams like the ones that were busted in this um, in this enforcement action, the ones I've been receiving have been proclaiming to be from a lot of tech companies that have uh, ch- charged your card that you need to get a refund, or there's been an you know some sort of clerical error that you need to reach out to them so they can get your bank account. And what's interesting is none of these companies have I ever been able to reach by telephone, no matter how hard I've tried. <laughs> So it's at your telltale. If you phone the number and someone answers, it must be a scam. You pretty much. <laughs> Have you ever tried to call Google? Not personally, Chester. I I, I recommend against it in case you ever feel tempted. Uh, the, the number of people that reach out to us about things like their Instagram accounts being stolen and their Facebook accounts being stolen because they weren't using multi-factor and these types of things. And you, you listen to these people describe their experiences trying to get support from Facebook or Instagram to resolve that issue. And it will quickly convince you that if you reach a human, it's probably not real. And as Interpol went out of its way in its report to remind everyone, don't be fooled if you've been scammed once and then you get a call from a lovely gentleman or lady who is from law enforcement who wants to help you because they know you've been scammed. Because, as Interpol noted, one of the backstories that they came across in amongst the very many were scammers pretending to be Interpol. In simple words, if I can finish up now, Chester, on on this topic, stop, think, connect. And our other little jingle that we like to say, if in doubt, don't give it out. Never feel cajoled or pressurised or sweet-talked into handing out information that you think you shouldn't. And remember as well that it can be via any kind of communication mechanism, right? So I've been seeing these scams come in through text messages. I've been seeing them in emails. I've been getting them as telephone calls. They don't discriminate. It's not always an electronic means. Um, All communication methods uh, are susceptible to these types of um, attacks. Absolutely. And as you said, they're often the combination, aren't they? That you'll get an email and the email will say, oh, we're going to bill your account. But no worries. We've got this fantastic toll-free number you can call. So Chester, let us move on to a story that has looks like it's finally coming to an end three years after we first wrote about it, and that is the conviction of a cyber criminal by the name of Paige Thompson, who many people may remember was associated with a massive data download from Capital One almost three years ago to the month. And she's finally been convicted of a whole load of offences relating to downloading vast quantities of data, but also breaking into people's cloud services to inject crypto mining software so they pay for generating the cryptocurrency. 
So what's the what's the backstory here? Well, you know, she at one point in time had worked for Amazon, and uh, initially, I think folks were suspecting that perhaps she had inside information that allowed her to compromise these organizations. But then, as we learn later. Uh, it wasn't just Capital One. I'm, I want to say there were close to 75 different organizations that she ultimately was able to get data because of uh, misconfigured cloud firewall policies in Amazon's AWS service. And so she you know, was able to write a script that sort of scanned all of Amazon's cloud customers to see who had made this error and how they defined their firewall rules that allowed her to then access sensitive information in their Amazon S3 buckets. The charges were amended about a year later to include additional charges, as you say, for crypto mining for some of these customers who also had insecure EC2 instances, which is Amazon's elastic compute environment, uh, and did put some crypto miners in. The bizarre thing is she kind of bragged about all these crimes uh, that she had stolen 100 million records from Capital One, a a US-based credit card firm, as well as a lot of... um, university research institutions and uh, and other corporate entities that that had uh, these misconfigurations and to me the the installing of the crypto miners was another sign of this sort of call for wanting attention or wanting credit for being clever to do this because as we've investigated in the past when criminals install crypto miners they largely don't make more than 10 or 15 dollars because it's so difficult to intensively mine cryptocurrency uh, before you get discovered, that you generally don't ever make any money. But of course, in the US legal system, that did uh, multiply the impact of her crimes because she had a profit motivation. She kind of used that as a way of saying, well, as you can see, I, I, was, I just wanted to prove a point, didn't she? In other words, she's sort of passing herself off as a security researcher. But it seems that neither the law enforcement, nor the court, nor the jury bought into that theory. No, and neither did I. I I was uh, interviewed by the New York Times about her pending court decision just before she was convicted and was asked, uh, you know, if her, her defense attorneys were positing that she was a security researcher and that was going to be her defense. And the Times was curious about, like, did I think that the what she had done under any circumstance could be construed as a legitimate security research and i just have to you know ask the listeners would w- would you take one stolen credit card from the credit card company or the the social security numbers and personal information to prove that something was insecure you shouldn't but you might would you take a hundred million that kind of is a different level of intent and uh to prove that you're running code on something the famous thing we do in the hacker community when you're a legitimate security researcher is what is uh, often referred to as, you know, popping a shell or popping a calc. Popping calc is generally the demo that you do to show that you have code execution on somebody's computer when you shouldn't. And that literally refers to exploiting a bug and making the calculator show up on the Windows desktop just to show that I can run stuff and I shouldn't be able to. You don't then run crypto miners to personally profit from that crime. Yes, I think that's a very important point. In fact, in the Naked Security article where we covered this, My first tip was not what companies can do to protect themselves against data breaches of this sort, but was more around, if you want to get started in cybersecurity, read the rules for any engagement and follow them. And I guess the other thing that this proves very strongly, Chester, is that if you haven't 
got your head around the idea that things like penetration testing and scanning your own systems repeatedly and regularly in case things aren't set up correctly, if you haven't got your head around the fact that that is a good idea, well, this kind of proves that if you don't do it, the crooks surely will. Because she essentially concocted a what you might call an anti-security scanner, right? Exactly the same sort of tool that you could use to find the holes and go, whoa, that's not right. We need to fix that. But of course, once she'd found the hole, then she went diving in through it, which is why she got into a world of trouble. Well, and if you need help finding these types of problems in your cloud environment, uh, you might call us up. We might have something called Sophos Cloud Optics that can help with that. It's funny you should say that, Chester, because somebody, I can't think who it could have been, um, put a little advert for Sophos Cloud Optics at the bottom of the article at Naked Security. The only bit of commercialism in the show, folks, it is a great service that helps you with what, in the jargon, as we call it, cloud security posture management. Basically, it helps you go out and look for things that should not be happening and, just as importantly, to confirm that the security settings you expect to be in place really are, because like we've said, if you don't, somebody else will. So to finish up this episode, Chester, I would like to hear you talk about something which I'm sure is near and dear to your heart because it's uh, 100% Canadian, and that is a very peculiarly sized fine of, (laughs) see, you think they would have rounded it down, but they didn't, 200.9 million Canadian dollars that a financial organisation called Desjardins got fined for another breach. This one, not of as many records as affected Capital One, but I guess more significant data taken in the records that got stolen. Yeah, I, I I wanted to talk about this story because I think too often we feel like nothing happens to these companies when they're careless with our data. And even in the case of Capital One, while it was 100 million records and I believe the fine was about $80 million, there was also, I think, another 100 and some, almost $200 million in cost to Capital One from lawsuits related to that incident. Indeed. They did not get off scot-free. They did not. So how did it pan out for Desjardins? Well, you know, similar to Capital One, um, in this case, uh, they had 4.2 million uh, bank uh, customers that were compromised through this attack or their their personal information was compromised. And then, uh, as you pointed out, the settlement was 200.9 million Canadian. Now, it does sound odd. I was doing a little math in the background while you were uh, introing the topic, and I, I believe it's around fifty dollars per victim, which is how they ended up at this bizarrely uh, two hundred point nine million. In this case, the the incident uh, at Desjardins was a, a rogue, uh, malicious insider who had been Ouch. accessing and uh, using this information for more than twenty six months, and I suspect that may be why the the penalty was so large for a much smaller number of victims compared to Capital One because they had more than two years to discover this was occurring and they didn't either have the controls in place or didn't take any action uh, against uh, said rogue employee. Another at least positive result on the Canadian side from this was that the Quebec legislature is now looking at uh, updating and strengthening the privacy protections in Quebec as a result of this breach. So uh, the positive outcomes won't just be payments to lawyers in the class action suit, 
hopefully uh, a knock-on positive outcome might be stricter regulation that will prevent this from occurring to more victims. Indeed. And as we mentioned in the article on Capital One on naked security, breaches can happen to anybody. Let's hope they don't happen to you. But practicing what you would do if you discovered a breach is not planning to fail. It's not an admission of guilt. It's not something, oh, well, that would just be saying we'll never do the right thing. And it's my considered opinion that actually if you practice what you would do if you had a breach, who do we have to talk to? Which regulator needs to know? Who's going to take charge of talking to customers? What kind of language are we going to use? If you go through that exercise, even if it's not the technical part of the security exercise, my gut feeling is you're actually less likely to have a breach in the first place because you've started thinking about the hard questions of what would happen if you did have one. And nothing focuses the mind like having a dry run. And even those of us who have lots of practice and work in this field need to keep that in mind ourselves, right? I mean, a colleague of ours uh, a couple of weeks ago was in this situation of, oh, don't worry, I have backups of my firewall. Conf- oh, wait, the backup stopped working in February. <laughs> Um, you know, it, it's, it's easy for these things when you're not practicing them, even if you had started off on the right path to maybe have taken a slight veer off the path and in, in between since the last time you reviewed them. So it's not something that's a one-time exercise either. It needs to be maintained and practiced so that you're sure that all your protective controls are actually functioning. Absolutely. I know it's a cliche and I know it's a truism and I know we've said it very many times before on the Naked Security Podcast, but if you don't mind, Chester, I'm going to say it again. Security is a journey. It is not a destination. Absolutely correct. Well, Chester, thank you so much for stepping up to the microphone at short notice when you were in, it's in Orange County, isn't it, Anaheim? No less. I am in Orange County, California. That is correct. So, uh... Thank you very much for making time in your hotel room to come on this week's podcast. I do appreciate your efforts, and it remains only for me to say to everybody who listened, thank you so much for doing so, and until next time, stay stay secure. secure.